Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Irish survived another thriller on Saturday with a 32-29 victory over Toledo. We will see if Notre Dame puts its fans through the ringer again this Saturday with the old friend Purdue coming to town. Uh, there are plenty of storylines and questions about the current Irish team after two games, and we'll get to that later in the podcast. But we wanted to start today taking a trip down memory lane. Um, this week's guest knows a little bit about beating Purdue and winning the Shillelagh Trophy. Quarterback Gary Gotze led the Irish to a 23-21 victory over number 13 Purdue and quarterback Drew Brees back in 2000. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here with you guys. Gary, does, does the Purdue – does any time Notre Dame-Purdue game happen, does that sort of – sort of bring back those memories every time that game happens? Yeah, and no, look, it was a special time for me uh, in my career at Notre Dame. Um, it's a long time ago now, but, yeah, certainly whenever the Irish take on Purdue, it's, it brings back some good memories. What did you think, Gary, when Drew Brees was named the, uh, you know, the color analyst for NBC Sports for Notre Dame broadcast? Did you think that should be my job? <laughs> he went on to have a much more successful football career so it was good to see and I thought sh- they're certainly going to probably air that game at some point in time and rub it in its face <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, it's I looked at the calendar it's 20 years ago tomorrow it's 20 years ago on Thursday that you made that start and I I remember a little bit of the context, at least from Kevin Rogers' standpoint, the, um, the offensive coordinator under Bob Davey at the time. You know, he tried to tell me he knew that this was kind of duct tape and he was going to get one of the freshmen ready. Um, but I wonder, did you know long-term or were you under the impression this was just going to be a couple of games? No, I mean, I was aware that the, they had recruited three quarterbacks behind me, and uh, I knew it was uh, it was up to me to prove to the team and to the coaching staff that I could actually be a quarterback at Notre Dame. 
Um, and I think I had a successful spring, uh, the, the spring right before the season, um, and, and had a good off season. Had a lot of rapport with uh, the, the the upperclassmen and with the receivers and the offense. Uh, and and look, I had played quarterback my entire high school career, so I knew when whenever I got the opportunity um, that I was going to run with it and and have as successful and as long of a career at that position as I could. Um, I also knew that, you know, I was going to do whatever was in the best interest of the team ultimately. Um, and, and, and ultimately I did move to tight end and that was with the best interest of the team. And so um, we had, you know, great seasons thereafter, but no, I was focused. I was, uh, I thought that I was going to be a quarterback for the long term. Um, whatever it worked out the way it worked out, but uh, we, had, we had fun while we did it. Gary, the, the lead up to that Purdue game, obviously with Arnest Battle getting hurt, when did you realize that he would get hurt or that he was hurt and that you would become the starter? Yeah, so it's 20 years later, so I guess I can tell the story. I wouldn't have told it back then, but I, you know, we had had a, a fun night out. I think, I forget if we played the week before, I believe it was AM, Texas AM. And um, we had a, a win and uh, we had a fun night out with the boys. And uh, I was awoken by uh, Joey Gethraw, uh, uh, David Gibbons, and Arnett at my room in O'Neill Hall. Uh, it was early in the morning, and I, they said Arnett had been injured during the game and that he wasn't going to be able to play uh, the next week. So <laughs> I sobered up really quickly. When Breeze came in, I mean, he was he was – I don't think we knew Breeze was going to turn out to be – pretty good college quarterback already what did you think of I mean you don't have to defend him but you know as, as the other quarterback but what did you think about that matchup going in do you remember yeah you know I wasn't uh, personally uh, you know I wasn't focused on Breeze uh, per se I was more focused on the team Purdue was a great team back then they had a lot of weapons on offense they had a pretty stout defense um, and, and you know we we're at a the point in the season where we needed to, you know, make a statement and have a big win. And we knew that we had them coming into our house. Um, and so we were just focused on personally, I was just focused on, you know, getting the offense into a rhythm and being as productive as we could be when we were out on the field. Uh, and again, we had a stout defense. So I knew um, that we were going to get Breeze his run for the first money uh, out there. And of course, you know, the game was close and, you know, we had our chance there at the end. And we were able to close it out. Gary, in terms of the preparations for you during that week, I imagine it's a lot other than just preparing to play in the game. Uh, the attention sort of surrounding you, it certainly increases. What what was it like sort of dealing with everything that comes with becoming the, the starting quarterback at Notre Dame? Yeah, you know, it, it comes with the territory. And I, you know, at that point in time, I had been around for a year. So I was able to see Jerry's Jackson. I was able to see the way our net battle dealt with um, kind of the, the peripheral of everything that goes on with the, this job as a quarterback at the University of Notre Dame. And I was locked in and I was focused and um, I, there was no hiding. Right, Saturday was going to come and we were going to go out there and we were either going to win or lose. And so I was very focused. I was very prepared. Um, I will say I, I knew the offense uh, just as good as anyone. And I prepared myself, you know, during the offseason for this moment. And so um, I was able to block out, you know, any of the potential distractions. You know, I had a brother playing at the time at Georgia Tech who was a quarterback 
And so I was able to lean on him for some advice, and, um, you know, what, what it's going to be like with a big crowd and having to lead the team finally. And um, I was able to, you know, really focus in on the objective, and that was just to win the game. You, you mentioned your brother that was at Georgia Tech. I believe that was George. And then you had another brother that played at Air Force. I think all three of you ended up getting ACL tears at one point. <laughs> but uh, George is the same George that's Miami's co-offensive coordinator, the Dolphins? Correct. Did you think about getting into coaching at all? I did. You know, when I uh, finished my career uh, playing at Notre Dame, um, I had uh, inquired about uh, becoming a GA, and I think it was on uh, Charlie Weiss's staff. Um, and he brought some folks in, I think, from New England. Um, and it, the stars didn't align. And so I finished my graduate degree at Notre Dame, got into the real world. But, um, you know, I see what my brother goes through and the stress and, the, uh, you know, day in, day out. I'm married and have three kids. And so I'm obviously hindsight, you know, I, I would have loved to get into coaching, but I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine <laughs> with the way things have worked out for me. What is the moment from the, from the Purdue game that really is the most vivid in your, in, in your memory? Is there, is there one specific moment that really stands out among, among the rest? Yeah. So, you know, when I think before this, before this interview, I was thinking about some of the highlights, um, you know, I remember the block punt early in the game uh, that set us up a great field position. Uh, I remember Shane Walton having a great game, um, but it's hard not to remember the kick at the end from Nick Seta uh, to seal the win. Yeah, that was uh, – I, I remember that game. Some games more vividly than others, but I do remember. And, again, I will say I hooked my – I hitched to your wagon was going to finish the season, and I – I did not get that correct. <laughs> it was <laughs> short lived. When they got, yeah. The the other thing that was that was unfortunate felt like to me in your career was when you applied for the sixth year um, after tearing your ACL, and I think you, you re-injured it after tearing it, um, and and missed that whole 2003 season and so forth. I remember being pretty frustrating. How did you kind of navigate out from, from that point and how, I know your dad was mad too <laughs> yeah so it was look it was my first taste of like reality um you know I think any any player at the University of Notre Dame goes they're thinking that they're gonna have a chance to play in the NFL uh and I you know I had a nice career ended up having a nice career at tight end and then the Gator Bowl uh when I first tore my knee uh, and then rehabbed it that offseason and came back for my fifth year and then retore it. I believe it was one of the first day or second day of two days in fall camp. Um, <clears throat> that was extremely frustrating uh, that I didn't get to play my last year there. But I'll tell you what, I mean, we, we, we applied for the sixth year. Uh, Notre Dame at the time was, you know, Kevin White was the athletic director and he and his staff, uh, Sandy Barber, um, um, specifically did everything they could for me to get it. I mean, I think they appealed it a number of times with the NCAA and um, whatever, you know, it worked out the way it worked out. And it's, it's unfortunate. I never really got to play my last year there, but it kind of is what it is. And it shows the, uh, it shows the, 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 the real kind of game. You know, you could at any play, it can be your last. 
Gary, I used to cover recruiting closely, so it was fascinating to read a little bit about your recruiting process. It seemed like you weren't necessarily sure that you were willing to give up playing quarterback, but decided to come to Notre Dame anyways. Can you sort of walk me through how, how you sort of ended up at Notre Dame, even knowing that you may not get to play quarterback? Yeah, so I remember my uh, recruiting visit. It was the third uh, visit that I had. So I had gone to Ohio State. Um, I had I had just finished going to Georgia Tech, which, again, where my brother was at the time. I had grown up a Notre Dame fan. I had gone to Catholic school my whole life. And, uh, you know, I just remember it felt right for me. And I knew that regardless whether I played quarterback or tight end uh, or any other position for that matter, I knew that it was the best decision to go get the education uh, and be at a school with, you know, kind of the global – a brand that Notre Dame has. So it also helped that I, I have my mom on my recruiting business saying, you need to go to the school year. <laughs> That's great. What are you, what are you um, doing with your life now? I think you're back in Tampa, right? I am. So I work for a company called Jones Lang LaSalle, uh, JLL, headquartered out of Chicago. We're a global real estate firm, commercial real estate firm. Uh, and I oversee our business uh, in Tampa. And I oversee our business in South Florida. So I'm back and forth from Tampa to South Florida. I married a girl from Maine who went to the uh, University of Connecticut. I uh, have, have three kids. I have a 10-year-old girl, an 8-year-old girl, and a 5-year-old boy. That's awesome. And how often do you get to keep up with Notre Dame? And have you been back? So I try to make it once, if not twice a year. Uh, with my brother coaching, I, you know, it's tough because I try to juggle going to his games and then getting back to campus in South Bend. Um, but yeah, I, I try to make it to one or two a year, but definitely follow every game, um, follow you guys. You know, this is, uh, it's a big part of my life. So what are your plans for the game this Saturday? And will you be sending Drew Brees any uh, notes on his commentary? <laughs> well, I, I'm certain though, at some point, if not show a clip of that game, they'll show, they'll talk about it. I'd imagine. Um, but yeah, no, I'll definitely be, be glued to the, the TV and, um, we've got an exciting team this year. You know, a lot of uh, key positions have been filled with new players and they're an exciting bunch to watch. What do you think of, um, the Notre Dame quarterbacks, Jack Cohn and Tyler Buckner? And what do you, what do you think about them sharing time? Yeah, no, I was surprised to see that, uh, in the Toledo game, but look, the, you know, they both bring, um, Tremendous, uh, I think, leadership, command of the offense, you can tell. Um, and, you know, they both spark the offense in their own way. Uh, but they really enjoy watching them. I think they're very, very, both very efficient. Um, you know, it, it, Notre Dame is every, everyone's biggest game. And so you knew we were going to get Toledo's best there. So I wasn't surprised about that. But uh, I think the quarterbacks did a great job of finishing that game. That's awesome. Well, Gary, we really appreciate you joining us today. And uh, one last little thing. H has your path ever crossed with Drew Brees? Have you guys ever spoken since two 2000 or 2001? Yeah, so my, I have not. But, you know, my brother was the offensive coordinator for the Texans a few years ago, and they had an inter-squad practice uh, during preseason with the Saints. And uh, he brought it up to him, I think, in passing. And I think he kind of laughed it off. 
<laughs> by that time in his career, I think that was long forgotten, but, right. but not for me. <laughs> well, sounds good. Well, Gary, thank you very much for joining us and uh, looking forward to not making it 20 years before we connect again. Yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for everything you're doing for the school. All right. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame Purdue. And the first bet is how, how much math was Eric Hansen able to get A's on during school? Because when we were talking to Gary Godsey, I said it was 20 years ago this week, and it's actually 21. And I knew it was the 2000 game. I just lost track that it was 2021 this year and not 2020. So yeah, you, uh, usually by September, you stop forgetting what year it is, but well, that's your reflection of what kind of year it's been. <laughs> I, I'm just glad Gary went along with it and, and didn't correct me because he's uh, I'm sure he's way better at math than me. But let's go ahead into our place your bet segment. All right. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 50 rushing yards for Tyler Buckner. Um, I want to say under just as a gut feeling, but I'm going to go over because it's only logical that they're going to use him and he's going to be good at it. And uh, I think uh, he's going to get his 50 yards. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go under, I think maybe just slightly. I think Purdue's probably going to be better prepared for what he can do than Toledo, having seen the package and what he, he does um, and being more aware. Now, maybe maybe Toledo was aware of it and just failed at, to, to stop him when he was out there, but I think Purdue will have probably a better game plan for it. Um, so I, I think that he will – I think that the running game will continue to have some success with him out there and it, and it won't necessarily need for need him to be the one picking up the yard. So I will go with under next one. I have for us is will George Karloftis record a sack? Well, you know, Purdue hasn't done a whole lot yet. And maybe they were just taking it easy on UConn. You would have thought that would have been a sack fest because UConn is the absolute worst team in FBS. According to the athletic, they're one thirty out of one thirty. I mean, as a team, Right. Um, you know, Karloftis was incredible two years ago as a freshman. Last year he had some COVID issues. His numbers were kind of suppressed. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say I'd say yes. Yeah, I, I'll go with yes as well. It's, it's surprising that he hasn't had a sack yet this season, um, but I don't see that streak continuing against Notre Dame's struggling offensive line. I, I think uh, Purdue will have its opportunities to – Sack either Jack Cohn or Tyler Buckner, and uh, George Karloftis will be a big part of that. So uh, Purdue has only had one sack this season as a team, which is pretty surprising, but um, I don't think that's necessarily a, an accurate reflection of, of the quality of their defensive line, especially George Karloftis. Next question I have for us, Eric, over under five sacks for Notre Dame's defense. Yeah, and there's two Karloftises on the roster too, so. <laughs> yeah. Um I'm going to say yes. You know, Notre Dame has been pretty pretty consistent with their pressures. I think, you know, even though that they've been gashed in some big plays, teams have had trouble dealing with the pressures and the different ways they come from. And with Jordan Batello apparently ready to roll, I think that's going to add to it. So, yes, I'd say yes to that question. 
you or over, um, which is over. Well, you were tricking me with these yes and no questions before. <laughs> yeah, keeping you on your toes. Uh, I uh, I will go with over. I think they're averaging, or I know they're averaging five game, five games, or five, sorry, five sacks per game so far this season. Um, and I think that they'll be able to continue to pressure Jack Plummer consistently, um, who's not nearly as elusive as someone like Jordan Travis. So I, I think that. Um, even though getting to six sacks is an impressive feat and something that when it happens against Notre Dame in terms of their offensive line causes panic and a little bit rightly so, um, I, I do think Notre Dame's defensive line has been that good and, and will be committed to, to pressuring Jack Plummer so they will get more than five sacks. Next one, will Notre Dame score on every red zone trip? Well, they have so far, and they've all been touchdowns, but it's only been four, um, which ties them for the national lead with a bunch of other teams that are perfect so far. Um, I I like their red zone attack, so I'm going to say yes. I mean, it's hard to gauge where Purdue is defensively. I was way more impressed with their win over Oregon State than I was beating Connecticut 49 to nothing. Everybody should beat Connecticut 49 to nothing or more. So it's really difficult to tell from that. Um, they do have a new defensive scheme. This game would have been so much funner, more fun, <laughs> if Bob Diaco was still the defensive coordinator. They fired him last year with a year left on his contract. Uh, so I'm getting off topic here. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm going with yes too. It is. It's surprising that Notre Dame has scored 73 points this season, but has only, uh, been in the red zone four times. I think that speaks to their offense being more explosive than it has in the past. Um, but they have been successful every time they've been down there more with the pass with three passing touchdowns and one rushing touchdown. Um, so I, I don't know that they're, the recipe is going to necessarily allow for them to sort of punch the ball in on the ground very much if they get in the end zone, but I do have some confidence that they'll be able to connect with either Kevin Austin Jr. or Michael Mayer or even Avery Davis or Braden Lindsay or Joe Wilkins Jr. down there in the red zone. Next one I have for us, over under 100 receiving yards for Purdue wide receiver David Bell. He's really good. Um I think Notre Dame will have a plan for him. I can, I mean, if they were going to play as much man as they played in the Florida State game, I would say yes. I don't think that he's going to get a lot of one-on-one -on -one opportunities. So I think he'll have a decent amount of catches, but it won't go over 100 yards. There'll be shorter catches. So I'm going to say under. I'm going to go with over. I'm I'm curious what Notre Dame does to stop him. Like you mentioned, you you think they'll they'll have a plan for it, and I would think they would too. But um, I am skeptical that they can execute a plan unless it unless it uh, involves having Kyle Hamilton chase them all over the field, which maybe it does. I don't know. Um, I just I just can't envision a lot of scenarios where he doesn't have a big game because he's so important to their offense, and Notre Dame has shown a penchant for giving up some big plays. So I think that he will be able to get over the 100-yard mark. Well, I mean, he's definitely going to be the best receiver that they've faced so far. Um, but if you have the best safety in college football, I would think you have to deploy him against that good of a receiver. But I guess we'll see. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, so lastly, what is your final score prediction for Saturday's game? I feel like I'm throwing darts with my eyes closed with these score predictions. <laughs> I'm going to say Notre Dame 37, Purdue 22. All right. Yeah, I uh, haven't been too too close in my predictions so far. Um, so maybe this one will be close. but um, And Notre Dame winning. Would, <laughs> would require Notre Dame uh, to put uh, their fans through another – tight one, but I'll predict Notre Dame 31, Purdue 27. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at NDI and Eric's at NDI. First one we have is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. The offensive line play was atrocious this weekend. If you are Brian Kelly and Jeff Quinn, what are the things that you would most be focusing on with the offensive line in the next five days that will generate the greatest amount of improvement possible for the Purdue game? Do you make personnel slash position switches? Well, I had my live chat today, so I've answered a lot of offensive line questions (laughs) from really mad people. Um, and Marie didn't ask an offensive line question in it. She asked something else, but I knew she would be mad. She's been she's been leery of this offensive line for months, and she was <laughs> correct. Um, how do they get better? I, I still think it has to be – the theme has to be building on continuity and chemistry. I think that's how you get better. Um, Brian Kelly did make a suggestion that – um, he might do some rotating, and I would think that would be at the guard positions, either one or both of those. I don't think you know, they've rotated enough at left tackle because of injuries. Right. Um, and they're not going to rotate at Josh Lugg's position. They're going to not rotate at Jarrett Patterson's position. So we're talking about uh, Zeke Carell and um, Kane Madden being guys that might – and and – you know, again, maybe there comes a point they, they've made offensive line changes before in season when things weren't working. But usually the, the plan is to just kind of stay with uh, the guys that you believe are your five best and wait for that chemistry to kick in and work on technique and, and the continuity and, you know, really doing the extra work to get it to go. But I mean, it's just not something that's microwavable, so it's going to be incremental improvement. Yeah, yeah. For the reasons you outlined there, I'm a little skeptical of the concept of moving guys around um, because I do think the continuity does matter. Um, And I I think some of the issues that have occurred in the first two games are a lack of experience of this line playing together. Um, So I'm not sure – how much putting someone else in will help fix that. Now, obviously, if that person can play a lot better than the guys that have played on the field, then then you make that move um, and sort of deal with the chemistry issues. But um, there's certainly guys that are on the offensive line that probably deserve to be rotated in and out of the lineup based on how they've played. Um, I'm not sure that there's a strong case, um, stronger case in regards to Carell or Madden. I don't know that either of them have played well. I thought Carell played better in the first game. Um, against Florida State than he did against Toledo, where Madden, I think, has is, is kind of struggled in both games. I don't think Josh Lugg has played particularly well either. Um, so while yeah, that's surprising. He, he will 
he may have seemed like one of the safest best to stay out, out there. Um, and it's not like they have a lot of tackles left to go into the game because they're yeah. using them all left tackle. Um, so he might be, this, he might be safe for now, but um, I, I I'm really intrigued to see how, how that plays out in terms of like trying to find improvements. I think the play calling can help the offensive line. I think we saw that with Tyler Buckner in the game um, that opens the offense up, brings some more lanes into the, into the, into the running attack. Uh, makes them have to protect the backside with the with the read option. So I think continuing to run read option with both Jack Cohn and Tyler Buckner. Jack Cohn needs to keep it on some of those opportunities. I know he's not probably going to run up for 26 yards uh, like Tyler Buckner is, but if he picks up four, that that that's good enough to keep the defensive end honest on that side. So I think the RPO game will, will be will, will take a lot of pressure off the offensive line as well. It's a lot easier to pass protect in the RPO because you just block it like a run play. And the quarterback is supposed; it has to make the decision quick, so you're not really dropping for like a five-step drop back or anything like that. So I think those are things that can help the offensive line as it sort of sorts through its issues. Um, and I, I'm, I think, even relying on play action, which is related to RPO, but there are more there are play action plays that aren't necessarily RPOs anymore. Um, and even though they haven't been having success running the ball, even though Brian Kelly said he was a little bit, it's a little bit confusing that they have been good at play action. Um, even though they haven't been good at running the ball, I, it doesn't always matter as long as they they're worried about you running the ball, whether or not you've been good or not. Um, they're going the play action could be successful. So those would be some of the things that I'm looking forward to seeing Notre Dame potentially implement this Saturday. And I have a very extensive uh, breakdown of offensive line play um, that will be online Thursday on IndianInsider.com for subscribers, and we will talk about much more offensive line stuff here in the next few questions. <laughs> Uh, the next one we have is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib43. I'm not sure what my expectations were of the guards, but Madden definitely does not feel like he's playing at an All-American level at Notre Dame when compared to other Notre Dame All-American linemen. What do you think the disconnect is with him and Zeke Correll? And do you think Rocco Spindler should see some time? Um, Tyler's taken a little bit deeper dive to this. I, I, I'm not sure what the disconnect is with Madden because um, it's not like Toledo is a big difference in talent level than what Marshall typically saw um, during Kane's All-American season. I mean, again, some of it may just be getting used to the new players. I mean, he's been playing five years with other guys, and, you know, I'm not sure how much Jeff Quinn's blocking schemes are similar to what he's used to, or uh, I did request him as an interview this week because I wanted to get to the bottom of some of that stuff, <laughs> uh, but uh, was turned down. But uh, um, I still think if he was good enough, to, and it wasn't just like he made one of those phantom All-American teams. I mean, I think Pro Football Focus does a pretty good job of analyzing players individually with their film studies. And he came out very favorable in their film study. So I still believe that, that that's going to happen for him at some point, as long as he keeps his confidence up. Uh, you know, Corral is playing a different position. Uh, so, um, you know, there's, there's some newness there for him. And again, he's not used to, the other people that he's playing with. But again, he's a really talented 
guy. Should Spindler see some time? Boy, just for the interviews, I'd love for him to <laughs> play. Um, I mean, I think he's going to be a star. I don't know if it's going to be this year. I think he's going to be a starter next year. Um, but, you know, if you have an opportunity to get him in there. But, again, if you're trying to build chemistry and flow, I don't know that you do that in the heat of the game and just, you know, try to get him some experience. He's either one of your best five or he's not. Yeah, I, I certainly thought Kane Madden would play better than he has in the first two games, but I also felt like I tried to sort of pump the brakes on the hype a little bit and make make it clear that he wasn't going to be like Aaron Banks or Quentin Nelson because those guys were all American guards at Notre Dame. He's just not that kind of a player. Um, I I don't even know that – so the way he's played so far this year, he's, he's not better than what Tommy Kramer was at Notre Dame. He Kane Madden has to play better. Um, there was a play uh, in the – first quarter that I describe in my story that both he and Josh Lug didn't block basically anyone. And I don't know what if Kyron Williams runs right behind them. Like, Hey, what, what are we, what are you guys doing? Let's, let's get, let's get things moving. And they, I, they look lost. So I don't know how much of it is just sort of taking time to adapt to the system. Um, he certainly bet he, his performance at Marshall was certainly better than it has been at Notre Dame. Um, the PFF stuff I, I think is interesting. Like, my sort of thought is that his PFF grade is what drove his All-American status. I'm not sure a lot of people voting on the All-American teams are always locked into Marshall offensive linemen. Um, so I think that elevated him. And maybe PFF had had some strange evaluation there. I don't know. I, I don't really know um, what, what the disconnect is there with that. But um, Notre Dame needs him to be better. Um, and if he can't be better, I think they have to consider – playing someone else like, like Rocco Spindler. I, I'd like to see what Rocco Spindler could do. Um, like we mentioned, uh, it's, it's interesting. I, the, the, the combination of lug and, and Madden on the right side just is not athletic enough in my opinion. Um, and so, I mean, that was part of the reason I thought it, w- it would make sense to put Zeke Carell at right guard and put Kane Madden at left tackle or left guard um, with a, with an athletic left tackle. But um, I, I, I think there's a lot to, for Jeff Quinn to work out. Um, I, I think Zeke has, has shown some good things in, in the first t- two games, but he's also shown, shown, shown some inexperience and, and getting overwhelmed a little bit. And I think I have more confidence that Zeke will, will sort of learn and improve from that because he is so, so new to this. I, I just think that some of it is just getting that those game reps and being able to perform at the level he wants to. Uh, but those are, those are um, important positions for our name. I'm, I, I'm honestly not sure whether I would say the tackles have played worse or the guards have played worse. I don't know. The only one that's played well, in my opinion, is Jared Patterson. Um, everyone else uh, uh, has lots of work to do. Next question is from Maverick at Real Deal Mav. Tyler, as a former offensive lineman, how much of this is a lack of technique? Is this the worst you've seen a Notre Dame offensive line look? I can't ever remember a Mac team rushing with four and sacking slash pressuring a Notre Dame quarterback constantly. Well, he is asking you, so. <laughs> yeah, so I, I will start there. I, I think some of it is technique. And I, I think what, what when you see technique issues, it can either be they're being taught wrong or the guys just aren't executing what they're being taught. And some of the issues that they're having are, are clearly, in my opinion, mistakes. It's like no one's telling them to do that that way. Like that is just poorly executed. Now, are they not being taught well enough in practice? I don't know. 
Um, I, I, I hesitate to say that without like feeling, seeing like something in practice, like, look, they're not, he's clearly not telling um, this guy that he needs to, to not give up pressure on his inside leg. Um, I, I think some of it, I think sometimes your technique lapses when you're overwhelmed, maybe in terms of the circumstances, when you're confused with the defense is throwing at you. Sometimes when you're thinking about too much of that stuff, the techniques that you've been drilled upon sort of lapse a little bit. And so, so they come up with those issues. So I, there's a combination of things. I think just as much as anything, it's just been meant, especially in pass protection, Matt, Matt has been miscues. Like there's been 11 unblocked defenders who have pressured uh, Jack Cohn so far this year. And whether that's miscommunication, that's the fault of Jack Cohn or the running backs or the tight ends, or the offensive line. I, I can't tell for sure, for certain on that. Some of them you have a good guess, but um, they just need to do a better job of, but making sure they're all on the same page um, and, and sort of fighting through this inconsistency. Now, this is probably the worst two-game stretch that I can remember. The beginning of 2018 was pretty bad, too, um, but those, those statistics are much better. Notre Dame rushed for 249 yards and was sacked six times against Michigan and Ball State, and this year Notre Dame has rushed for 197 yards and has been sacked 10 times. Um, that Ball State team sacked Notre Dame four times, and three of those sacks came on on 15 dropbacks against a four-man rush. So Ball State was able to a max school, a four and eight max school for that for for that uh, much uh, was able to pressure Notre Dame, and they able, they were able to fix that in part with changing quarterbacks from Brandon Wimbush to Ian Book. Now the offensive line sort of improved along the way as well. Um, so Notre Dame has to sort of uh, has a lot of reflection to do this week and. We, talk, we spoke to Jarrett Patterson on Tuesday night. He was the offensive lineman we got to talk to. He had to sort of handle the hard questions. And he he said they he felt like they have been doing a good job this week. He felt like especially Tuesday was a really good practice. They, they, they are getting better. And we will see if the, the product matches that on Saturday. Well, if they don't improve, Mission Barbecue is going to take back that name, <laughs> image, and likeness. The deal. No. Uh, I, uh, let, let me break from the questions for just a minute and sure. just ask you, because I get a lot of questions about Jeff Quinn and they're not always questions they want my opinion on. They want a <laughs> voice that yeah. what their opinion is. And my thought was, okay, if you're going to blame him for what's going on now, doesn't he get credit for what they did last year? And I had this one guy come at me. He's like, well, that was Chris Watt that was doing all the coaching. Chris, that- Chris Watt is the greatest graduate assistant in the history of football, it seems, because he gets a lot of credit for last season. And then he also said, well, they're all Harry Heastan guys. Well, Harry recruited them, but he didn't coach. Uh, you know, he coached Hainsey for one year and uh, the big guard that went to San Francisco. Uh, Banks, Aaron Banks. Banks for one year. I mean, and he coached, and he coached Liam Eikenberg for two years and Liam Eikenberg wasn't good enough to start crack the starting lineup. Right. So, and I'm not, that's not a detraction from Harry, but I think you got to give Jeff Quinn some credit. And I also told the story about, you know, when Harry was at Tennessee for two years, they couldn't wait for him to leave. They (laughs) had a terrible situation and they were like, he's like, well, I'm leaving. Okay. Bye. You know, don't let the door hit you in the butt. And and he comes to Notre Dame and they're in the national championship game next year. I just think sometimes it's over, it's just an overreaction to it. And I, and I think 
Jeff Quinn, probably as long as he's at Notre Dame, there's going to be people that think it's Brian Kelly's fishing buddy and nothing right. more. Yeah. And that's why he has the job. But yeah, he, he, he hasn't, he hasn't been able to escape that sort, sort of label on him, even despite the success that the offensive line has had over the past three years. Now there have been ups and downs, no doubt, but there were ups and downs when Harry Easton was the coach too. I Absolutely. Mean, you can be a great offensive line coach and your offensive line can struggle. That, that happens. It's five guys that have to play together. It is, I would argue the hardest position to coach because you have to, you're relying on so many guys playing together, doing the same thing. Um, to make it successful. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think there were so many people that didn't think Jeff Quinn should have been the offensive line coach when he was named the offensive line coach and sort of like any sign of the offensive line struggling, they want that to use that as a reason to, to get him out of here. Now, if, whether that happens or not, we'll see. Um, I don't think Brian Kelly is happy with the off the way the offensive line is performing. And I don't think he's patting Jeff Quinn on the back this week saying, Hey, you, yeah. hey buddy, everything's fine. Like he, he's not, he's not pleased with how this is going either. Um, so I think this will be addressed. Um, and, and I, I just, I, I, I it, to me, it, it does seem incredibly unfair sort of the credit slash lack of credit that has been applied to Jeff Quinn by, by some people throughout his uh, tenure at Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame really caught a great bounce last year in that they didn't have a lot of tinkering to do going into the season during the COVID year where they, those sure. guys weren't together. The problem is the guy, the younger guys didn't get developed. You know, they didn't have a spring practice. They missed that. They weren't together part of the summer. And when they were, they were conditioning most of the summer instead of, you know, learning how to play together or, or even learning how to play individually. So you really had to focus on those guys that were going to play for you, not, Boy, I wonder, you know, we better get Tosh Baker ready for 2021 in case uh, the third string tackle needs to play. All right, let's get back to the next question. We still got some more offensive line questions. Um, I think people want to hear the answers, so I, I was happy to take offensive line questions or at least get our opinions on it. Bert Leonard asked um, at Bert2834, when Notre Dame was on the third left tackle of the season, why was there almost no tight end help on that side? Well, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. I think George Takis played 25 snaps in the um, Toledo game, and some of them would have been with Mayer, and some of them wouldn't have been with Mayer, I, I would imagine. Although Michael, I think, did play every snap, so I guess it would, would have been. But the thing is, you can't do that every play without giving up a big part of your playbook and also kind of tipping your hand on what you're going to be doing offensively. I think there's other ways to accomplish it with a back, with a wide receiver and with a second tight end. And so um, I do think there should have been consistent help when you needed it, but, but not to tip the place. And I don't know that again, having George Takas be that second tight end versus Tommy Tremble being the second tight end is a big difference too. At this point, I mean, it just is. Yeah. I think, it, it's tough because because it seems like you would you would if you're gonna give extra tight end help you would want that to be a second tight end because you don't want to be keeping Michael Mayer in to help block because he's arguably your best pass catcher on the and you might not even be arguably he is the best pass catcher on the team so you don't want to sacrifice his options now certainly you could have him chip the defensive end on his way into the route but some of the routes that Notre Dame uses don't necessarily. Um, 
lend it's lend themselves to to him being able to help that way. And I think he could use some help from the running backs. And Kyron Williams is certainly willing, but he's also a guy you'd like to be able to dump the ball off to if the pressure's coming as well. So it's it's sort of a pick your poison kind of situation. Obviously, the ideal would be able to get the left tackle in a position that he doesn't need help all the time. But I do think Notre Dame will probably do some things to to help Tosh Baker if he is indeed um, playing left tackle this this uh, this week. I I believe I saw Michael Carmody not in in practice gear yesterday when we were doing interviews. So um, I, I'm very skeptical that he will play this week. Um, even though Brian Kelly didn't rule that out yet, um, maybe we'll find out from him on Thursday whether or not that will be the case. But um, they certainly need to figure out some ways to help Tosh Baker in that situation. Next question is from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. Would introducing a blocking back, a tight end lineup as a fullback, and going underneath center help the running game at all? I mean, maybe in some situations, but again, not a steady diet of it. Um, I, I think, you know, going under center on goal line and short yardage certainly makes sense. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, if Jack suggested that in the offensive meetings, I think they wouldn't kick him out of the room. Uh, but again, I think you have to have a variety in your offense. And, uh, um, so, and I'm not, I'm not sure that Notre Dame isn't doing that a little bit. Again, they did it more last year when they had Tremble, who was an elite blocker. Right. He could express that position a lot better than the people they have behind Michael Mayer this year at this point in their careers. Yeah. I don't think anyone on the roster is capable of being a blocking tight end slash fullback like Tommy Tremble was, or even like one that they could use regularly this season. So um, I don't see anyone that sort of has his strength and explosiveness combination. Um the, the running under center stuff, I'm not as sold on that being helpful. I think it would be helpful if you had, did have like a fullback. Um, I think one of the advantages is it is less predictable on which direction you're trying to run the football because if you're in like an I formation, it's just as easy to run left to right. When you're running a shotgun, you, it's most likely if the running back's on the right side, he's going to be running left, um, though he certainly could run right. But they're, the zone reads usually – pretty under easy to predict which way the zone read is going to run, but the zone read itself sort of levels that out because the, the quarterback has the option to run. And I'm not sure that like doing bootlegs with Jack Cohn would be the equivalent of the advantage that the zone read could give you. So I'm not sure that that would be the s- scenario that would help Notre Dame, but uh, if it does, if they feel like it should be, um, they should cer- certainly try it. Um, one more from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R bunch of numbers. And we sort of gotten this into this a little bit already, but why? And she asked, why doesn't Brian Kelly hold Jeff Quinn accountable for the poor performance of the offensive line? You know, Cheryl, I apologize for the beginning of this answer because all I could think of is, do you want him to spank him in front of you? Is that what? You're <laughs> for? Um, but but in all seriousness, I I understand where Cheryl's coming from, but I think as a head coach for you two publicly, um, you know, criticize one of your assistant coaches is a really bad move for a lot of reasons. Um, I think, I think behind closed doors, just knowing Brian's personality, if he thinks Jeff, this is Jeff Quinn's fault, there's no way that he is not letting him know about it. Uh, so, but 
but for him to tell us that I think would be um, a bad look for Brian Kelly and, and bad for the team. Yeah. I mean, the last in-season firing that occurred was Brian Van Gorder. And this is, in my opinion, is not a Brian Van Gorder situation. Notre Dame's offensive line was, was good last year, whereas Notre Dame's defense was not very good when Brian Ever under Brian Van Gorder. <laughs> when Brian Van Gorder was brought back. And, and so I think so I know because people have sent me many comments on, on Twitter about their thoughts on the offensive line. And 2019 is sort of the season that is pointed at as, as the offensive line play sort of dipped. But if Notre Dame can match his 2019 performance this season, I think they would be happy about that. They averaged 179.2 rushing yards per game and only allowed 1.23 sacks per game, which was 12th in the country. Um, but, but for some reason, that's uh, that was a season that required uh, Chris Watt to be hired as the graduate assistant and completely turn around Notre Dame's offensive line in 2020, uh, according to some narratives. But I, I think it's fair to say Jeff Quinn has not done a good job this year. But in my opinion, I don't think that is that is a trend. I don't I do not have enough evidence to believe that um, he didn't play a key role in Notre Dame's offensive line being good in previous seasons. Next question is from at Irish fan one zero two. We can finally escape the offensive line uh, firing squad. Uh, it seems like we've had players miss time this season for COVID cases and close exposure. Can you give us a refresher on how long players must refrain from football due to COVID? Does vaccination status change the isolation duration? Okay. So basically uh, Notre Dame is following the ACC guidelines and where vaccination has really changed things is with quarantines. If you're a vaccinated player and you have close contact with a, an infected player, uh, you get tested. And unless you're positive, there's, then you're still in play. Um, before you would have to uh, sit out. And if you're not showing any symptoms, then you would have this long quarantine period. As far as isolating, that's still a kind of a long process. It's a minimum of 10 days from the first time that you show an infection. And we know that there are, um, there are such things as breakthrough infections for vaccinated people, but they don't seem to be very common. And given, um, again, Notre Dame's status uh, or their policy as a school requiring vaccination for all their students, they're not in a community with a very high infection rate. So um, again, the big problem last year was the two-week quarantine period uh, that, that players had to do. Now there's, that goes basically goes away. Uh, if you're a vaccinated player, Notre Dame has over 95% of its team vaccinated. Yeah, and that's part of the reason when Notre Dame came out onto the field before before the game on Saturday, I'm taking my binoculars and looking to see which of the guys that aren't unavailable are actually on the sideline and which of them aren't, um, because that you would seem to think if, if guys aren't at the stadium that they're probably in sort of some sort of COVID situation. Um I, I spotted Sebo Flemister on the sideline, um, and I did not spot Jordan Botello, and I did not spot Prince Colley. Um, so that would lead you to believe that, I mean, there could be other scenarios where they wouldn't be at the stadium. And, I mean, if they're 
if, maybe if they were serving some sort of suspension, but we don't have any indication that that is the case, um, that, that, that maybe they wouldn't be at the stadium, but it, it didn't seem like those guys were there. Um, so I, I think the first, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say this is the way you look at it, but when, when Notre Dame announces people as unavailable, you should most, the most likely situation is that they're in some sort of COVID protocol. That was why the system was established last year. Now, certainly there are probably people that get put into that category late in the week that uh, could be injured and they haven't announced an injury for, or could have some other thing going on. Um, but the vast majority, I, I, it's my belief, are, are, are sort of tied up in the COVID situation. So it's, it is a good point um, from a good question from Irish fan 102 to sort of ask sort of how the, the uh, isolation process works and how long that lasts. I, I, I did look at another detail from sort of Notre Dame's campus protocol. If you're unvaccinated um, and have been in the contact tracing, you have to quarantine and test negative twice over a seven-day period with tests on day four and day seven to, uh, to leave your quarantine. So if, someone, if that applied to someone on the team, they would be going through that same situation. Next question is from Michael Kenny at Domer747. Assuming he plays, what kind of impact should we expect this week from Jordan Botello? Well, I think it just depends on how much they try to give him the first week. But let's say when Jordan Botello's at full speed, I would expect pass rush from him. I'd expect you to see a violent tackler um, and a sure tackler. Could he make mental mistakes? Possibly. He's got great instincts. I mean, his mental mistakes usually relate to getting penalties. Yeah, being um, a little hot-headed. Yeah, so he's <laughs> generally not going to miss a tackle or miss an opportunity to knock somebody silly. Um, you know, when we saw him in August, not, not on the first day of practice, but he was involved in their practices so there was the plan to use him. I mean, he was getting um, valuable reps. So he knows the defense and he knows what his role in the defense is. So it's not like sometimes where there were players that were being suspended where they were. I mean, Kevin Austin was playing defensive back one August um, and and Dexter Williams wasn't getting meaningful reps. Um when we saw him at, at certain times too, but boy, Jordan Batella was practicing as if he was going to be an important part of their defense. And I, I really think he can be, I think he can up the ante on the defense. Yeah. I like him in the role that Isaiah Foskey has played um, so far this season with the Viper and playing in that sort of linebacker alignment at times. Um, I think Jordan's probably better suited for that than Justin Adam Alola as the number two Viper. Um, in the in that specific scenario, so I think um, Jordan can be a, a great addition if he's if he's good to go and comfortable in the defense, and they're ready to sort of let him loose. I think he'll be flying around and making plays. He's a good pass rusher. Sort of you, you sort of hinted at it too. The only concern I have is is if he maybe is an assignment sound, which we've seen Notre Dame have some issues with so far, kind of collectively as a defense, and um, he will need to be sharp in, in that sense as well. Next question is from at Coffee Dark Roast. Any reason why Drew Pine didn't take snaps over Tyler Buckner? Is Buckner a better slash faster runner? Was Pine injured? Is this a chess match where Brian Kelly puts out a depth chart but doesn't follow it? 
Well, I mean, the plan all along, I remember asking Brian Kelly after the blue gold game, if there was, if he would consider a niche role for uh, Tyler Buckner, he didn't dismiss that notion at all. So it was always in play. And even when Brian Kelly's done the niche role quarterback, it's not always been the number two quarterback when in 2011, it was Andrew Hendricks, who was the number three, you know, Dane Christ and Tommy Reese were one, two, and then two, one, they flipped. Uh, but Dane wasn't the um, changeup quarterback that year. Uh, Tyler Buckner's the best athlete on the team. He's the fastest runner. He's the best runner. And oh, best of the quarterbacks, you said that. Of the quarterbacks, of the yeah. quarterbacks. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to throw uh, Chris Tyree in there. <laughs> of, of the quarterbacks. So, I mean, I, BK's not playing games with this depth chart. I, I think that had, um, had Jack Cohn got hurt on the first play of the game, Drew Pine would have played a lot. Now, you may have still seen the packages for um, – for Tyler Buckner, but I think Drew Pine would have played most of the game. So he's just in an odd place because he's not better than Cone at what Cone does. He doesn't have the experience Cone does, and he's not the athlete that Tyler Buckner is. But I mean, he's still a valuable, you know, player in their depth. It's just there's not a clear path to him playing unless one of those two or both get hurt. Yeah, yeah. Buckner is definitely a a better and faster runner than Pine. Pine Pine is not injured, to be clear about that. Um, I'm a little dubious that they would put Drew Pine in if Jack Cohn got hurt. Brian Kelly said that they're not afraid to play him, but I still think they're more likely to play Buckner ahead of him. I would, I mean, I don't know that I want to say I would be interested to see that because that would indicate that I would be interested in Jack Cohn get hurt. But I I think – I think as the season goes on, there's less chance that Pine would be the guy. But I think right now – he takes more reps and he knows more of the offense. Yeah. And, and I, I thought Tyler Buckner sort of having success right away, sort of just maybe throws your plan out the window. It's like, okay, I guess Tyler Buckner is the guy who we're, we're going to stick with if, if, if we need to. So um, I think uh, I'm not sure what, what this means for Drew Pine, but um, for the time being, I would expect to see more of Tyler Buckner than Drew. Well, well if Tyler was the full-time quarterback people would scout him and they would try to make him play left-handed, meaning they would try to do what they tried to do with Ian Book. And they, you know, only Clemson really was able to do that, make him a pure pocket passer in the second game. But in the first game, he got outside the pocket and killed Clemson. Um, and, And so that's what they would try to do with Buckner is just, and Buckner as a pocket passer right now, I think he's a, he's got a heck of an arm, but he doesn't have the understanding of co- all the coverages and stuff because he's played one year of football in the last three. Yeah, and, and Tommy Reese indicated during camp that Tyler's buck his, his like first instinct was sort of just to tuck it and run too much in, in, in camp, and that was something they were working on getting him more suited to sort of reading and and reacting to the coverages and, and, and going through progressions rather than saying, "Oh, this guy's not open. I'm going to take off and run because I can't." All right, next question is from Wayne Usteroff at W. Usteroff, wondering if Marcus Freeman's defense gave up this many big plays in Cincinnati his first two games there. Did you have a chance to look up the stats from that game, Eric? I did. Um, 
They played Austin P and Michigan in his first two games. And, you know, you look just throughout the season, you know, they gave up big plays in, in certain games. So, you know, when they, let's say when they played UCF and McKenzie Melton, remember him from, right. the, yeah, from yeah. well, he was UCF's quarterback back in 2017. And he had touchdown passes of 54, 79, 41, and 22 yards. And UCF won 51 to 23. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were big plays, but Cincinnati wasn't very good on defense or offense that year. Uh, they were taking over a team that uh, had been under Tommy Tuberville. And really, they needed to kind of recruit to their system and get the players used to their system. And then you really saw in 2018, they went um, and became, you know, a top, I think they went to number 11 in total defense uh, very quickly after being 94th the year before. So they were 94th his first year and then went to 11th and they were a top 15 defense every year thereafter. So the three years thereafter, I don't think it's going to take Notre Dame a whole season because Notre Dame had a lot more talent right, right. left over. I just think there's a transition here, and we're going to start to see those big plays become fewer, and, and, and they need to, and we're going to start to see a more consistent defense and probably a defense that's, you know, again, capable of putting you in a big hole and not letting you out. Yeah, I, I I I think it's too much to say that the big plays are a direct consequence of Marcus Freeman's scheme, but I think it's probably fair to say that there are consequences if the scheme isn't executed to the extent where it needs to be executed. Um, just to follow up on the, those first two games, Austin P did not record a play longer than 25 yards um, in 2017 against Cincinnati. Michigan had three plays of more than 40 yards, a Donovan Peoples run for 44 yards. Ty Isaac run for 53 yards and a Kikola Crawford 43 yard touchdown catch. So did give up a few big plays in their, their first two games, not surprisingly against Austin P who isn't as talented as the Cincinnati team was, but, um, and then obviously we're at a talent deficit playing against Michigan um, when, uh, when he was at Cincinnati, but we will see how the, uh, how the defense rebounds. I, I think there's reason to believe that this won't be necessarily a season long, uh, issue for Notre Dame what the the real turning point for them was the 2018 opener where they opened at UCLA and beat them and that was a big upset at that time and again you saw you know 144 yards rushing from UCLA there were about 306 yards total yards Cincinnati had five sacks for 25 yards I mean that was kind of the beginning of this is who Marcus Freeman is but again I don't think we're gonna have to wait until the 2022 opener Although that would be good timing. That would be in Columbus. But uh, um, I think you want to kind of ramp up to that Ohio State game. All right. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher 15. Pass coverage by the cornerbacks is once again spotty at best, though they are excellent tacklers. Is this due to the scheme Notre Dame runs or the talent level? Also, are the Knights of Columbus still selling their game day steak sandwiches? I have no clue on the steak sandwiches because we're not out in the concourse. Although from what I read, the, um, the menu in the stadium is more limited um, this year. So 
I don't know. Tyler may have more information on that. They had Papa John's pizza in the press box <laughs> and, and ham sandwiches with mustard on them. Um, <laughs> as far as the, uh, the cornerbacks, um, you know, they play a lot of man and that, and that's a difference than they're used to. And, and there's a lot of experience there. And um, I think eventually they're going to be pretty good at it. You know, uh, Mike Mickens had a really good track record of not only coaching up the cornerbacks, but coaching up young cornerbacks. And right. he himself was a really good. Now, one of those young cornerbacks was Ahmad Gardner, who's now, I believe, a junior or senior and is an All-American. But, I mean, he was playing at a high level when he was a freshman. Mike Mickens played at a high level as a freshman. So I think eventually, again, it's just kind of a – a little bit of a shock to the system. And once these guys get up to speed, uh, so to speak, um, then I think you're going to see improvement there. Yeah. I've actually thought the cornerback coverage has been better than I expected. Um, now that wouldn't necessarily apply to the nickelback situation. Uh, KJ Wallace's brief appearance and blunder in the Toledo game um, being an example of that. He's, he's a safety playing nickel. So I don't know if you count that or not, but I think those, those coverage lapses that we have seen are a product of the scheme requiring the players to win one-on-one matchups. And if they're not up to snuff, then there's a chance they can get exposed. That was the case of KJ Wallace and Houston Griffith the week before um, they sort of, sort of failed their assignments. Uh, I think, I think you could have a, a good debate about whether or not they should be in those assignments in the first place. Um, but that, that could be a lengthy debate and we've already done the lengthy debating on the offensive line for today. Uh, but I think the, I think the quarterback position will be okay. I do think that the depth they need to we need, we need to see more of the younger guys. Ramon Henderson was getting some work at Nickelback after KJ Wallace uh, hit his um, struggle. I think Tariq Bracy has been fairly good in, the, in his action so far, and they they play him both at nickel and at outside cornerback in a rotation. Um, so I think. Uh, the, the issues are sort of like what I was talk, getting at with the previous question. They're, they're related to the scheme, but um, you need to have the guys that can um, sort of execute the scheme. And th- there's certainly room for improvement at, at Notre Dame's cornerback position. But like you said, Mike Mickens has a reputation for being able to do that. Um, and for, as far as the Knights of Columbus and their game day steak sandwiches, I reached out to the Knights of Columbus on campus and they did tell me that they are indeed back to selling steak sandwiches on campus. So if you're on campus, go ahead, head down there and uh, get a steak sandwich. Um, I've never had one. I didn't even know they existed until that question. Oh, really? I, I've heard of them. I've actually never had one either. So maybe I should uh, seek one out on a game day in, in the future. Next question is from Zach David. Bring it up to the press box. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll see if I can get a cooler full of them and they'll let me through security with, uh, with a bunch of steak sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Next question from, is from Zach Davis underscore ND. Feels like Marcus Freeman's defense is closer to where it wants to be than people are admitting. I have to imagine big plays aren't against big plays against us are cut down by continuing to play in and learn the system. Really, otherwise the unit seems like it would be wouldn't be fun to play against. How off is this read? And speaking of off, that was a terrible read by me. So proceed if you understood the question, considering how many times I stumbled over it. I agree with Zach. How's that? Um, (laughs) I think the biggest problem with the offensive line and the defense 
is that Florida State laid an egg after playing Notre Dame. They lost to Jacksonville State. And if Florida State had blown them out and there was some thought that Florida State might be a bowl team or a pretty good team, then I think people could accept the growing pains a little bit more in a road opener. But but the Jacksonville State game was really um, <laughs> – well, yeah. you know, when you start doing the transitive property of these scores, it doesn't uh, bode well. But yeah, Florida I State, think you have to throw it out. Florida State scored fewer points all game than it scored in the fourth quarter <laughs> against Notre Dame. Uh, so I think uh, um, there's certainly – that, that made the, the concern greater and people don't expect Toledo to be world beaters. Although I think there's a chance they're a pretty good Mac team this season. Um, I, I, I sort of think that's a pretty solid read from Zach as he, as he phrased it. Um, the front is playing really well. I believe the back end needs to eliminate the mistakes. Are they talented enough to do that? Maybe not. Maybe there are some, some holes in that secondary that can be exposed. One thing I'm a little concerned about is if someone like J.D. Bertrand can sustain this workload and level of play. He has played very well for Notre Dame and is being asked to do a lot. Um, I think it's harder. It's harder. It's going to be hard to sustain that high level without having some lapses throughout the season. If he's being asked to do so much with so little sort of depth behind him, given the, the linebacker position. So I think that's something I think the linebackers overall have played Decent. I, certainly, they've had their share of missed tackles, um, but I think have, have played pretty well and and aren't necessarily um, the culprits for a lot of the big plays. I think it's just a one or two missed tackles here or there can really cost Notre Dame. And obviously, the same could be said about the coverage mixed miscues as well. Okay, let me follow up with you on that. What, what do you think about Drew White only having one tackle? Again, I didn't do a film study of the game, but that just seems like that's really difficult for your middle linebacker to only have one tackle and your weak side guy to have 11. Yeah. I didn't spend as much time. I I didn't rewatch the defense, but I didn't like try to analyze it too much given how much time I was spending trying to catch up on analyzing the offensive line play for the past two weeks. But I'm curious if like something within the scheme is sort of using Drew White as sort of a a setup to get JD Bertrand free for more situations. I'm not really sure. That's more, that's more of a theory than like a, a, any idea if that's actually the case. Um, well, I think we're, we're sort of learning how this defense works under Marcus Freeman because we're all sort of experiencing it for the first time um, at Notre Dame. So I, I, the, it, the, the stat alone is definitely surprising. I'm curious how concerning that is to Notre Dame if they're if they're if they they knowing that something like that is going to happen based on the way they're playing or. Um, if he's just not getting himself in position to make tackles um, rather than maybe just taking up blocks and holding his gap and letting other guys make plays. I'm not really, really sure how, how Notre Dame feels about that, but it certainly um, on paper is, would be surprising. And I think they're, they're definitely comfortable playing Bo Bauer more and more. So um, I think uh, that, which I think, I was curious to see if like one of those guys would play some, some will linebacker where JD Bertrand is playing, but it doesn't seem to be the case, but I'm not sure if they, that the way they have things set up is going to be able to last all year. I'm JD Bertrand has played sort of out of his mind in my opinion. (laughs) Um, And uh, not that he's not a good player, but uh, I, him averaging uh, 11 and a half tackles per game um, seems like uh, uh, a high bar to keep up with. 
And then the last question is an email from Ken in Pensacola. Two games does, does not make a season. However, it does show that Notre Dame doesn't look like a championship team. Does their poor showing on the playing field change how you all view the win-loss record for this year? Well, I, I mean, I'm not changing my prediction um, because I think, like I criticize the um, predictions of the recruit pe- people that do recruiting and then they change their opinion at the last minute when they know they're not going to be right. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I think you make a preseason prediction and you stick with it. Now, as far as how I see this team and what its possible ceiling is, I still think it's out there for them. I think they're, they've got a longer climb to get there. Uh, I think it's still possible. So, you know, I mean, I've seen too many of these kind of, you know, sputtering starts from, you know, the 2015 team, the 2012 team, the 2018 team, and the 2020 team. And so I don't get overly excited, you know, this early in the season. You know, if, if they're doing this in October, then it's going to be a problem. Yeah, I, I may be stubborn and resisting the obvious, but I'm not ready necessarily to come off the 10 and 2 prediction that I made in the preseason either. I, the next two weeks will tell me a lot about what, what this team is made of. Um, the, the problem with the 10 and 2 prediction right now is that you can see, you can imagine those two losses coming from any number of teams on the, on the rest of the schedule, even, even though some of the teams on the schedule haven't necessarily played as well as you thought they would. Uh, this season. So um, I'm not going to sh- jump ship for my prediction yet. Um, I'm really curious to see how this week plays out. And then of course the following week against Wisconsin. Um, but I think there's reason for hope and there's also reason for, for, for doubt as well. So it's, it's going to be a, an interesting next couple weeks uh, for Notre Dame football. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We will be back next week with a Purdue review and a Wisconsin preview. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs. Mm-hmm.